We're jumping right in uh, again this morning as we continue our series called Minor Chords, Songs of Justice and Mercy. And this is a series that's taking us through some of the prophetic messages found in the Minor Prophets. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, these books, referred to as the Minor Prophets, would fall within sort of the lowest read or lowest familiarity rating for me when it comes to the scriptures. Is that true of you guys too? How many people have not spent a ton of time with the Minor Prophets? There's a few of us. And I think there's a bunch of reasons for this. I think, firstly, as we read these, these books, they're filled with poetry and bizarre imagery, and they're, they're not, it's not kind of one-to-one. You read it, and you don't necessarily know what to do with it. So I think that's one of the reasons. I think another reason is they're heavily referential. You read this passage, and you immediately know that you have to know what's going on. There's, there's events referenced, there's people referenced. And so there can be this block because you feel like you need to know the whole Old Testament or the whole Bible. And so that's another way that I think we're, we keep our distance from these minor prophets. And then I think thirdly, they, many of them, many, the prophets in general, can be very harsh, very pointed. And so... Uh, it can be easy to say, I don't, A, I don't know what to do with it, and B, I don't like it, so it's easy to sort of keep our distance from it. Well, I was, when I was in uh, school a number of years ago, I took a class called The Prophets. And basically the class was teaching you how to interpret the prophets based on God makes some promises to his people, and he says, I, you know, I promise to bless you if you follow my commands and if you're faithful to me. And he, he also lays out some curses. And so the class was all about reading the prophets, interpreting them through the promises that, that God had made, and looking forward, because the prophets also sort of cast a vision to the future. And so the professor at the time said that he wished that he could call this class, the prophets, how to read your Bible. And basically what I realized is that the, the prophets really roots us in the whole scripture story. We, through the prophets, we come face to face with God's intentions to renew everything as he set out to do at the beginning of creation. And so he, he invited his people to be a part of that. They let him down. And the prophets remind us of this. So this morning in particular, we're jumping into Malachi, one of these minor prophets. And so, as, as you would expect with anything that's a little bit poetic, a little bit harsh, uh, we're going to have to get vulnerable this morning before God. Now, my covenant community, the small group that I'm a part of here at Force U, uh, likes to refer to this as getting vulny. So, this morning, there's about seven laughs. That sounds about right. So, this morning, we're going to get vulnerable together. It's time to get vulny, and we're jumping into the book of Malachi. So the, the book of Malachi and all the prophets are sort of written with different artistic structures. And the book of Malachi is written as staged disputes, staged arguments between God and his people. And to understand the argument that's happening in the book of Malachi, I think I just want to root us in the narrative, the scripture narrative, and kind of remind us of the time that we're stepping into this morning. So... We, we, not too long ago, just did a series here at Forest. You called the story where we did kind of jump through big chunks of the scripture narrative. But you will remember that God freed his people from slavery in Egypt. That's when he established a covenant, when he made all these promises to him, and he promised to take them to the promised land. He, he was going to take them to a safe place out of slavery and into a home for them, 
And so there's that journey. And then we also know that again and again and again, God's people are unfaithful. They don't hold up the standards that God has asked for them. They worship other gods, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And eventually we get to the point where God allows the enemies of his people to rise up, to destroy the temple, to seize this promised land that they've been given and drive God's people out of this land. And so we know that part of the story. Well, eventually God returns many of his people back to this land. And we know the book of Nehemiah uh, lays out the story of Nehemiah. They're back, God's people are back in this land. Things are still not amazing, but but there's a settling happening again. And Nehemiah sets out to rebuild the temple. So Malachi is a contemporary of Nehemiah. So we're jumping back into the story. God's people have already been scattered. This period that we know of as exile, they were exiled from their home, but God has begun to bring them back home. And now they've been here long enough that they're building the temple again. And so there are, there are some ways in which things are uh, good again. There's a good foundation. They're back home. They're not scattered. And that's the context that we jump into this morning. But what seems to have happened is that the God's people have returned to the land, and while they're grateful to be home, there was, they would have encountered lots of prophets, lots of people like Malachi who delivered messages on behalf of God to their people. And we, we would have some of these in the Bible, and lots of them are filled with images that we would associate with Christ. And so God's people are expecting God to show up in big ways, to deliver them from all of their enemies, from all of their sin. A Messiah is coming. And so even though they're grateful that God has brought them home, they're pretty disappointed. They feel like they've seen, they're expecting bigger. They were expecting more. They thought God was going to show up in a different way. And so, yeah, it's good to be home. Is it really any better than where we were before? Sure, we weren't in our own land, but God's kind of let me down. And so in this context, in this place, a malaise sets in. People probably recognizing that God freed them, delivered them back to home. They're still going through the motions. They're still, they're still giving their sacrifices. They're still upholding God's law, kind of. But they're kind of just doing their thing, doing their, doing their lives. And they start to give take the best of what they're developing, earning their, their animals, their, their, their crops, and keep it for themselves. And so it's this community, it's God is frustrated with this reality, and this is when Malachi steps in and stages this debate with, between God and his people. So Malachi, right away, the first thing that God says through this, in this debate is, I have loved you, but you ask, how have you loved us? Right off the bat, there's this arrogance. Uh, so, so, sorry, I should back up just a second. I want to take us through, we are going to hone in on a piece of Malachi this morning, but Malachi's four chapters long. It's not a massive book. So I want to take us through quickly the whole thing, this, this dispute between God and his people. I want us to, to lay out for us the things that God is frustrated with. So first of all, he's, he says, I have loved you, but you ask, how? How have you loved us? There's this arrogance right out the bat that people aren't, it's like, have you though? Sort of 
There's a distancing from God. So the first thing that God takes issue with are these blemished sacrifices. So God's people, as a part of their worship, would have sacrificed animals before God to atone for uh, the sins in their lives. And basically, they're, they're offering uh, lame, blind, sick, diseased animals, whereas they should be offering the best, the prized, the healthy animals. God, God says in Malachi, a son honors his father and a slave his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty. It is you priests who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? By offering defiled food on my altar. God's upset with getting their leftovers and their damaged goods. Next, God goes after the priests specifically. Not only are the priests allowing this to take place, the people that are facilitating this, this form of worship with their people, they're allowing this to take place, but they're also teaching in a way that isn't in line with the law of God and allowing people to, they're leading people astray. And so God takes particular issue with that. Then he wants to talk to his people about marriage and their unfaithfulness. This is what he says. He says, do we not all have one father? Did not God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our ancestors by being unfaithful to one another? So this passage addresses divorce. It also addresses uh, people marrying people who, who love other gods. And you can imagine in a context where people are dissatisfied with God, they're not they're not trusting God to provide for them, that they're going to be dissatisfied with the people they've committed to as well. And God's not, not happy about the, these broken covenants, these broken agreements between people. Next, God tackles injustice. He says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying, all who do evil in the eyes of the Lord... Sorry, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. But where is this God of justice? A little further on, God says, So I will come and put you on trial. I'll be quick to testify against the sorcerers, the adulterers, the perjurers, against those who defraud the laborers for their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, who deprive the foreigners among you of justice. But do not fear me, uh, who deprive the foreigners of justice, but do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. So not only are they keeping uh, their best for themselves and not for God, but they've turned a blind eye to people that are being oppressed by other people. Businesses and people are kind of free to do whatever they want. People that cut corners and, and abuse other people to get ahead, a blind eye is, is turned towards that, and God says, no. Next, God wants to con confront their arrogance. You have spoken arrogantly against me, says the Lord. Yet you ask, what have we said? You have said that it is futile to serve God. What do we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord God Almighty? The picture that is painted 
throughout all of these issues that God has with his people are people who are completely distanced and buffered from God. God makes no difference in their life. He's there. They're going through the motions. They're not really, they're not really willing to walk away from God altogether. So God has become more of a superstition than a force of life in their, in their own lives. They do what they want, how they want it, and they save the best for themselves. So in the midst of laying out all these grievances that God has through this dispute, he confronts them head on. And this, is the, this confrontation is where I want us to spend our time this morning. So this is in Malachi 3, verses 6 to 12. Let me read this for us. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how do we return? Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings, you are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be enough room to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your field will not drop fruit before it is ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land. So I encountered this passage a number of years ago for the first time, and it, it, the first time I heard it, I was in that place where I never really, I knew Malachi was the last book of the Old Testament. That's probably as much as I knew about Malachi. And I was up at Ontario Pioneer Camp, which is a place that uh, many of us are familiar with. And I served at boys' camp there for nine summers. And in particular, those nine summers, I was there for nine weeks every summer. So I was kind of doing the whole summer every summer. And if you've ever done that in camp or anything like that, missions trips or, or anything that's an extended period of time, it is inevitable that you will run out of energy. You will just hit a wall. And one of the beautiful things about being in a context like that, whether it's camp or a missions trip, where you're working as a team, is that God can elevate that team, bring that team together, and push through that everybody runs out of energy, and yet somehow God provides beyond that energy. And sometimes in those most tired, empty moments can be the richest experiences because the community can attest that God showed up and gave us what we needed. And I've seen that play out at camp a few times. Many of you will, will have heard a few times now the story of uh, a flu that came and basically half of boys camp was, was puking and it was a disaster and everybody ran out of energy. Half the staff that was dealing with it got sick. But that is still one of people's favorite stories to talk about and remember because God showed up in a way that gave the community everything they need and, and camp continued on. Now, for me personally, when I think about my journey at camp, I can't say that I experienced this in my own life very often. And here's what I mean. So I can remember my first few summers being at camp, 
having my role, here's what you have to do, and pouring myself into it and wanting to do a very good job. But then when I was done that work, disappearing, hiding from the community, making sure that I had, I'm tired, the community needs me, I'm going to make sure that I'm rested. I'm going to go watch an episode of television in my cabin or whatever it is. Just doing what I had to do and then retreating. And obviously early on, that caused a lot of problems. People were frustrated with me. There is in any team environment, there's this expectation that, yeah, you do what you're responsible for doing, but then you help the team. You kind of go above and beyond what you're responsible for to assist the greater whole. And I just, I never, I was never very good at that. I was too guarded. I was too lazy. And I just kind of did what I had to do and pulled away. And every summer, I would feel guilty about this. Like I would end, because camp is a place that pulls people out of that. It's a place that uh, helps people deepen their capacity uh, and care for other people beyond kind of what they're responsible for. But I just kept failing. And people kind of felt like I was lazy. They grew contempt for my role because I was the worship guy who had a little more time during the day than other people did. And so it just kind of got more and more frustrating. Um, And I would end every summer feeling like, okay, next summer I'll come back. I'll give it everything I've got. I'll push and push and push until I faint and they have to take me to the hospital. And everybody will see how much of a team player I can be. And every year I failed. And it got to the point where Failure was so regular, and I was so frustrated that I just stopped imagining that that was even possible. And my limitations as a person, my own capacity, what I was able to do and what I wasn't able to do was all I dealt with. I, knew, I know what I can do, and that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take care of what I need to do. I'm going to take care of myself. And I didn't even imagine that another way was possible. It's just, just going to do this. And it was in the midst of that reality probably eight summers, seven summers in, after going through that rhythm again and again, that I heard this passage. And it was spoken at a a staff devotional in the morning, which is one of those things that I've probably heard a hundred of, and this might be the only one that I remember. Because who's, you know, who's awake at that time in the morning? But for (laughs) whatever reason, this one grabbed complete hold of me. It's got its claws in me. And immediately, I was shamed. I was convicted. It was heavy, the message was heavy, that I had only taken, I had taken enough for me, and I was the one that was providing for myself. I wasn't allowing God, A, I wasn't sharing what I had, I wasn't wasn't using what I had to bless others, and B, I wasn't relying on what God had, I was only relying on what I had. But while being that heavy, that shame, that conviction, while that existed, there's a simultaneous inspiration that came with this passage. I just want to read that, that phrase for you again from the passage. Test me in this, says the Lord God Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be enough room to store it. So I think since, that, since encountering that passage, in one way or another, I've been wrestling and wondering with what does it look like to trust God with all the different areas of my life. To, to put what I have in and not hold it back, but knowing that God will give me more, give me all that I need. What would it look like for me to trust God with my time? To not hoard it, to not feel like I have to use it because if I don't, it's gonna be wasted, but to trust God with my time. To trust God with my money, 
my energy, people's opinions of me, my whole self. And in many ways, this internal dialogue is central as our whole identity as Christ followers. We are not our own. We were created by God. What we have doesn't come from us. It comes from God. The story that we're living isn't our own story. We are a small piece of God's bigger story. But we live in a culture that we live in a world, a rhythm, a society that builds into us the opposite of all of that. You know, you've heard enough, you've seen enough YouTube videos that talk about how few hours there are in the day and efficiency and you, you have to do everything you can to squeeze everything out of every minute because it's gone before you know it. And of course, that's not, that's not inaccurate, but we're built up over and over and over again to just push God away. So the first takeaway, I think, when we... When we come face to face with this passage, the first thing that we have to do is we have to wrestle with that question, how are we robbing God? So we're going to start that this morning. We're going to ask that question, but I don't think it's, I think it's something that we have to carry with us, that you have to think about, that we have to chew on. In what ways are we robbing God? In what ways, in what areas of our lives are we apathetic towards God's presence and God's movement? Is it God's provision? Are we unaware, unwilling to accept that God has all that we need and will provide for us? Are we so busy providing for ourselves, providing for our family, squeezing every last drop out of every minute to provide that we are apathetic towards the provision of God? Do we spend, is it our identities? Do we spend every minute controlling and trying to shape what people think of us and how people view us, that we're apathetic to the story that God is telling and the person that God has made us and is bringing us into? Are we so controlling of our time that we're apathetic towards what God wants to do with it? We're apathetic to maybe the slow movements of God all around us because we're too busy. What about our worship? What about our response to the all-powerful creator? Is it leftovers? Is it sort of the last thing that we think of? Have we lost trust that God is our provider? Have we lost sight of a God who is the sustainer of everything? Have we believed that God doesn't love us and that we're on our own? I want to rewind a little bit back to April. And uh, every, every spring, the Force U staff gets together because we have an annual planning, uh, planning cycle where we think in the spring about the next September to June uh, what God wants to do in our midst, some of the things that are going to fill our schedule, etc. And we, we started in April with a, with a retreat. And part of that retreat, one of the conversations, was there was a brainstorming time of find, like, pray, sit for a minute, and, and what passage does God have for force you right now? What, what scripture comes to mind that speaks to you either 
where Forrest has been or what God wants to say to Forrest View or where, where God might take Forrest View in the future. And for me, this passage came right into my mind. That's when I, I, you know, I had encountered it a few years ago, thought about it every once in a while, but it was kind of parked. And then during this exercise, it came flooding back. And one of the reasons I think that it really speaks to us specifically is I think that we find ourselves in a context on a couple levels that, that match the context that God's people found themselves in when God has this debate with them. And there's two things I want to talk about. First of all, our place in history. We live, we live in a time after Christ has come and redeemed us and set us free and paid the price for all of our wrongdoings. And so we are all living in that. We're grateful for that. We're thankful for that. But we've all been living in that long enough to be disappointed by that. Say like, yeah, Christ sets me free, but I still have this sin in my life. I still have this disappointment, this pain, this hurt. There's still death. And so we live, we live after this time, but we still don't live, we don't live within the, full, the fullness of that. We know that God is doing more and that there's a time coming when God will return everything to as he made it, as he intended it when he created the whole earth. And so I think we find ourselves similar to God's people in a place where we can be annoyed, frustrated, let down by God, going through the motions because we still, we've, we, even, we know enough of God that we're not, we don't want to throw it away. We, we, we believe in God enough. And then I think as a church, as a church family, our context is similar. We're going through a lot of transition as a church family. Everything from the never-ending phase three building project, which has kept us in transition for the last five years, uh, to change in leadership, to the ongoing changes within the Forcey Youth community. And those aren't, that's not going to be the only change that we have to deal with. You know, God has, with all of us, in change and in this time of transition, we all have expectations. We all have ways that we want to see God move in our midst. And so this transition can be exciting. Can, it can renew our, our imaginations and get us excited for what God's doing. But I think this time can also be a time of disappointment. Any time that, that something is happening in a way that we wouldn't do ourselves or we didn't imagine to be the way it was, I think we can be disappointed. And I wonder if it's an easy time within our cultural context and our church context to coast, to worry about our own things, our own lives. We're all busy enough. And so I wonder if it's an easy time to be apathetic towards the movement of God. So that, that phrase, open the floodgates, what does that mean? If we were to not be apathetic to the movement of God, to give everything that we have and trust him to use it and multiply it and pour out so much blessing that we couldn't store it, what would that look like? Now, I think our temptation is to make this entirely personal, to say, like, what, what would it look like for God to bless me if I poured out everything that I had? And I think the way it's written and the way it's intended is it's communal. God's addressing his entire people. And any communal implication obviously has personal implications. But I want to explore this morning 
what it would look like for God to pour out so much blessing that we cannot store it here at Forest View as a church family. I think that in Forest View's history, this place has been a church, a place without walls where people have encountered Christ and experienced transformation in their life. They've been freed from sin, brokenness, pain, dark histories in their own life, freed from the things of the curse that have a hold on them. And I think that God wants to do more of that, more and more and more of that through this community. God wants to do that in our families, in our neighborhoods. God wants to pour out blessing and have more people meet him and be transformed by him. I think that throughout our history as a church, Forestview has been very generous. Forestview has been filled with generous people. Forestview has been a church that's poured blessing into other parts of the world, other churches in Canada. And I think that God wants to continue to bless the world through Forestview, through the generosity of Forestview. I think God wants to pour out more blessing on the world through this community. Forestview has been a place where people have developed their gifts. They've learned who God has made them to be. They've received, they've come to understand the giftings that God has given them and use them to bless others in this community, to bless others in our neighborhoods, and to bless those around the world. And I think God wants to do more of that. God wants to equip and enable more of us to bless the world with the gifts that he's given us, our abilities, our talents, our passions. And I think that all of those things sound very simple. You know, that it's almost like, well, that's what, the church, that's what the church exists for. So obviously God wants to do all of that. But I think it's an easy time to be apathetic towards that. And I think that God wants us to be reminded that that is what he wants to do and he wants us to be a part of it. So how do we change? How do we, how do we have a course correction? How do we, how do we interrupt us robbing God. For some of us, I think that we have a relationship with God that is vibrant and tangible, and you, you hear from God something like this, and you, maybe you've been distracted, maybe life's been, and you're able to return to God to repent and to kind of join in, join in with what God's up to. And I know there's some of us in, in here that that's kind of how it would play out. And I'm grateful for that because I think God will use that to, to richly bless this community. But I wonder if there's a bunch of us in here this morning, and I'm one of these people, that is so buffered and uh, separated from apathetic to the movement of God that we hear a message like this and we say, yeah, I'll do better next time. Uh, and really, we miss the whole point, and we're, we just feel very stuck. And I want to, I want to address that this morning, because that's how I feel. I think that I have engineered a life for myself that can, at times, more or less ignore God. And I'm sure that there are others of us in the room that feel that way, too. And so how do we, how do we change to open our hearts again to the character, the movement, the love of God? Well, for me, I think the first step is disruption. 
Because for me, the reason that God is, is buffered and held, ba- and held out of my life is rhythms and habits. I'm, I have default positions on things. This is the way I do it, and if I'm always going to do it that way, then I can ignore every other possibility. And so it's easy for me to just kind of keep God over here and just keep on doing my thing. And so I've realized that if I'm going to open myself more and more to the movement of God, I have to disrupt to continually just disrupt my own habits. And so uh, Janessa and I got married two years ago, and immediately we kind of imagined, because of our involvement here at Forestry, that we would live in the suburbs. And, and the suburbs is a context that it's not hard to be critical of sort of how easy it is to become self-obsessed and home-obsessed and stuff-obsessed. And there's, there's rhythms within suburban life, and in the whole world, but particularly in suburban life, that we sort of said, we don't really want to become that. And we, wanted, we imagined being in the suburbs, but living in a way that would maybe ask, people would ask questions about. We kind of wanted, like, how would the kingdom of God show up in this suburban context? And that was two years ago, and we've sort of thrown around ideas, and we've wanted to, to be different. But then, fast forward two years later, we feel like we're, we've fallen into the traps that we imagined we wouldn't fall into. And I think that that's... In a lot of ways, that's kind of the way it goes. And it's not all bad, but we found ourselves being more focused on ourselves and more focused on uh, providing for ourselves, busy enough, you know, making ends meet because of, the, because of the life that we've established for ourselves that we maybe don't have the time and space to be sensitive to what God is doing. So we started asking ourselves, how would we disrupt this? How would we open ourselves up to what God might be doing in our midst? And that's when we started talking about sharing our home. And so about a month ago, two friends of ours moved in with us. And we're, we're kind of experimenting with communal living for the next year. Not because that's going to solve any of our problems, because truth be told, it will probably create more problems. <laughs> but it does open me up again. It disrupts my patterns and my habits, reminds me that my home is not my own, uh, that my time and my space is not my own. And even if it's a miserable year, even if the end of the year was a complete disaster, then I will have more sin and more hang-ups and more questions that will hopefully open me up to what God wants to do in my life. And that would be true for all of us involved. And so that, for me, is, how, is what I've had to do to disrupt, uh, disrupt my habits and open myself up to the movement of God. So for some of us, we might have to do something similar, not, not invite people into your home necessarily, but to take a look at what needs to be broken, what needs to be disrupted. What are the rhythms and the habits and the automatic default positions that keep you distanced from the movement of God? Well, this, I, I hope and pray that God moves in our midst, that, we, that whether we are people that this morning, feel that tug from God that want to chase after him, or whether we're the people that feel like distanced and tired and like something needs to be disrupted. I think God wants to move in our midst, and I think that God wants to pour out blessing in and through this community. The truth about this is that we, we are incapable of giving God what he, what he deserves, what uh, we, we can't actually give him all that he deserves. And this morning, we 
can celebrate and recognize and be grateful for Christ, uh, the one who was able to put it, to put the whole tithe in, to give everything, and God poured out his blessing. And so this morning, we cling to that. We cling to Christ's example, knowing that, we, that that grace is available to us. So as we take communion this morning, one of the most interesting things about communion is that it is in the form, it isn't, the symbol is in the form of a meal. And obviously a meal is a very big part of human sustenance. Meals are, we need meals to survive. And so this morning, as we take the bread and the juice, may you take a moment, may you recognize that God has provided all that we need. And may that move us in gratitude to open our lives again to him. Let's pray. Father, we long for your movement. We long for you to pour out your blessing. And we, we admit this morning that there are many ways in which we cling to our own provision, our own ability to create blessing. And sometimes we lose sight of who you are, what you're doing, and what you want to do in and through us. So God, as we take bread and juice, the symbol of you laying your life down for us, we are reminded that you provide, that you give us all that we need. And may it be more than symbol. May it sit with us this week, and may we explore what it means to be sustained and fueled by you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.